This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we are so privileged to be meeting and talking with Allison Brennan, MPP. She's the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Association of ACOs in Washington, D.C., or NACOS, where she helps develop and advocate for policies to benefit ACOs. Prior to NACOS, she's the Senior Advocacy Officer at the Medical Group Management Association, or MGMA where she helped lead their advocacy efforts, focusing on federal regulatory and legislative issues and coordinating advocacy activities. Before joining MGMA, she worked as a program manager at the Brookings Institution, where she designed and managed educational seminars. Allison began her career interning in the United States Senate and then worked at the National Patient Advocate Foundation, where she lobbied state governments on behalf of patients and managed grassroots. Eric, we are we are so privileged to have such an amazing guest today. Well, I agree, Daniel. And Allison's doing certainly great work in uh, representing uh, the value community, um, leading the legislative and advocacy efforts at NACOS. Uh, NACOS is a 501c6 nonprofit organization that allows ACOs to work together to increase quality. Uh, lower costs, improve health of communities. Um, here at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, we um, have a very uh, collegial relationship. We we believe in the work that they're doing, and uh, certainly um, we were privileged to sign on uh, to the recent letter uh, that was issued um, by NACOS um, just a couple of days ago. Um, so this is an episode uh, for you all uh, that we're releasing the day that we recorded it, and it's because of all the controversy and panic around the the rumored cancellation of the global and professional direct contracting model or gpdc uh nacos um has taken some action um led out of uh, allison's office and writing to secretary uh, becerra as well as uh, policymakers around uh this issue of uh, direct contracting and telling them not to cancel this this important model 
Um, the, uh, you know, the, the provider community is really, really ignited on this issue. And um, we have we had some concerns, obviously, when we heard about this uh, earlier in the week that if, if the worst case scenario happened, I mean, this could uh, potentially jeopardize all the progress that's been made in the value movement and it would uh, invariably erode trust and CMMI and allowing um, the provider landscape to really have confidence in the future direction of value-based care. So um, I hope that listening to this episode can assuage some of those concerns. Allison is in the moment, in the know. She's uh, sharing uh, so many great things. And we talk about direct contracting at the end of the program, but um, but also uh, throughout the interview leading up to that, we sh- she has some great insights on uh, just the growth of the MSSP, uh, discussion of health equity, and some of the legislative priorities for NACOS in this current year. So enough of me talking. Let's go ahead and hear from Allison herself as she joins us for this special episode of The Race to Value. Allison, welcome to The Race to Value. It's so great to have you on this week. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Allison, I thought we would begin our discussion today with the state of the value movement. As of January 2022, there are 483 Medicare ACOs serving 11 million beneficiaries. And since 2010, more than 1,200 organizations have held an ACO contract in Medicare, Medicaid, or the commercial sector serving millions of additional patients. And the accountable care model has a long history of bipartisan support. I mean, looking back, you know, to the physician group practice demonstration program that was passed under President Bush's administration in 2000, and then further expanding under President Obama's administration. Um, it really seems like ACOs are proving to be one of the most promising solutions to bend the cost curve and provide high quality patient care. And there are really a premier payment model in the shift to value-based care. And when you look at the flagship ACO program, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, or MSSP, that's certainly an important bellwether for the value movement. And we've seen that in the last performance year on record, you know, we had record net level, we had record level net savings to the Medicare Trust Fund of almost $2 billion. And the program itself has saved $13.3 billion in gross savings and about $4.7 billion in net savings since 2012. And we have about 60% of MSSP ACOs and two-sided risks. We have 529,000 physicians, 1,300 hospitals participating in the program. So all that said, it really seems like these ACOs are well-positioned for continued growth. However, that's not exactly happening right now. I mean, the number of ACOs in the MSSP only modestly increased to 483 in 2022, following multiple years of flat or declining ACO growth. And this trend is somewhat concerning. And, and you know, I, I don't know, it, we were thinking maybe it might even, in some people's minds, uh, call into question, you know, the, you know, whether or not the, the publicly stated goal of having every Medicare fee-for-service beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030 might be in jeopardy. So as we start our conversation today, Allison, I just wanted to see if you could provide our listeners with your perspective on the value movement as it relates to the growth of ACOs and other APMs. Should we be concerned with the lack of growth in the shared savings program? And also with Medicare spending continuing to rise to out-of-control levels and ACOs proving that they can effectively increase quality and lower spending, what can policymakers do 
to increase the size of ACO programs in traditional Medicare? Well, Eric, you've just touched on so many great statistics and also kind of provided a good landscape of where we're at. Um, I think it is important to reflect on the Medicare Shared Savings Program. We're coming into our 10th year. And at this point, we know that there are a lot of success stories within the ACO community and the overall shift to value. But we definitely have a long way to go if we want to reach those goals that CMS has laid out for 2030 with having so many patients in a relationship with an accountable care provider. And I don't think that we should take for granted that we will get there. I think that it's going to take a lot of hard work. And we certainly have seen that in the past decade to get where we are today. Um, there's been a lot of momentum that has kind of slowed down in recent years. And that's in large part due to a confluence of factors such as the pandemic creating so much uncertainty, challenge and upheaval in the healthcare system. And also we saw some major changes under the last administration, which have been challenging for ACOs. So for example, new ACOs coming in, they get to keep a lower percent of the savings than they had previously. And we also at the same time see more ACOs moving to risk faster. Um, you know, as we look at the overall shift to value, one thing that I think is important not to do is to equate risk as value. I think it's much broader than that. And I think that the past couple of years, we've been really hung up on how quickly our ACO is moving to risk, how much risk is there. And I think that that's been a distraction from really what we should be focusing on, which is what does successful clinical transformation look like? And I think if we go back to that as the core focus and having a collaborative relationship between Medicare as the nation's largest payer and the provider community, I think that's really going to provide some tailwind to help us get to those 2030 goals. Allison. I appreciate you bringing up the successful clinical relationship and the collaboration. And I think both of those things are going to be so critical to the next question that I'm going to ask you. And I'll just set it up by saying that the CMS Innovation Center has de stated definitively over the last few months that it plans to embed health equity in every aspect of CMMA, CMMI payment models to increase focus on underserved populations. And once the agency starts to incorporate policies to close health equity gaps in its payment models, there will likely be a carryover to the Medicare Shared Savings Program as well. Strengthening the ACO model and other total cost of care models provides an important opportunity to reduce health inequities. And closing these gaps is critical for delivering that high quality care in a cost-effective manner. However, there's some significant challenges that need to be overcome or addressed to ensure success. First, ACOs will need to make significant upfront investments in health information technology to capture data on social risk factors. 
They're also going to need to make additional investments in primary care delivery models to provide coordinated care for underserved populations and address SDOH barriers that contribute to health inequities. I mean, there are so many barriers to implementing such equity-focused initiatives. You know, when you think about that upfront funding needed to stand up and scale programs, sustainable financing models to coordinate between medical care and social services, and the policy flexibilities in addition to deliver tailored care that meets diverse patient needs. It seems that the benchmarking methodology is also something that would need to be adjusted to better help ACOs that treat vulnerable populations. Can you speak to NACOS's work around advocating for payment model redesign that'll better address health inequities? And with some of the changes that are being considered, do you think there will be upfront payments made accessible to ACOs, especially in underserved areas? And finally, how can policymakers support providers during this transition, especially thinking about those in the safety net space, uh, so that they can be successful at addressing inequities as part of their as part of their participation in advanced APMs? You know, first of all, I just want to say I'm so glad that this is a part of the discussion right now, and it's an important part of the discussion. And I think that we've all seen the challenges with health inequities, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm actually gonna start with what you mentioned last, which was the need to support providers so that they will be successful in trying to close some of these health equity gaps. And I think that's really fundamental. Um, if we want to be successful with addressing health inequities, we need to make sure that providers have the data and the tools and the education for how to address some of these challenges. I get a little bit concerned when we start talking about adding more requirements for providers and forcing them to do things without providing additional support to them in order to actually be able to accomplish those goals. Um, so I think that it's really important as we look at APMs and provider payments that we're not just assuming these things will happen on their own. It takes a lot of work, uh, which you mentioned in terms of investments to capture data and primary care enhancements and really a lot that goes into being able to address social determinants of health and health inequities. Um, you know, upfront payments would be really helpful. Um, also, I think that while it's great that CMMI is talking about embedding equity in APMs, we just need to make sure that that's carefully designed and that there's data available for providers to help identify some of these gaps and to be able to close these gaps and, and make efforts to tackle some of these broader issues. I think that as we look at ACOs, they are uniquely positioned to help address health inequities. They have an inherent interest in closing those care gaps and trying to manage total cost of care for all their patients. Um, and especially I think patients who maybe haven't been in the past at the center of 
attention or have fallen through the cracks in some ways. And, um, you know, we've heard some great success stories from our ACO members about the work that they're doing in this space. So I think we really need to build on some of those lessons learned. There's a lot that needs to be done in terms of shared learning and also being able to kind of quickly pivot as the situations necessitate. And you know that's something we've seen with COVID um, in particular, but I, I hope that we are able as a healthcare system to continue kind of staying nimble the way that we have had to be the past couple of years. Um, I think that'll be important as we look at some of these issues around health equity. And we've seen success with upfront payments in the past. Um, so CMS, for example, provided upfront funding to ACOs um, through a couple different models in the past, such as the ACO investment model. We'd like to see that come back and we'd like to see a strong health equity focus to increase accountable care for populations experiencing health disparities. So I think that there are ways that CMS can really support this work. Um, you know, additional funding is one of those things, also facilitating shared learning among providers and also um, providing support for safety net providers who have been slower to adopt value-based payment models, largely due to high upfront costs and the mandatory downside risk we discussed. So in order to encourage those providers to participate and be successful in those APMs, policymakers have to ensure that they have access to adequate resources, the training and technical assistance that they need, and also a clear and fair path to take on risk. Another thing that you mentioned was adjusting benchmarks. So that's another option for trying to provide additional recognition and support for providers who are working with historically underserved communities. And that can happen a couple different ways. Um, and I think we're still really open to figuring out what the best way to do that would be. And if that's something that is experimented with through the Innovation Center, or if that's something that is added to the permanent Medicare Shared Savings Program. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think that the priorities need to shift away from reducing costs and towards reducing inequities and improving quality. So we really have had this dual focus of reducing costs and improving quality in the past decade. And I think it's really reasonable and important for us to add that third goal of reducing inequities. Well, Allison, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I think uh, integration of health equity is really going to uh, redefine the the value equation where instead of just uh, hyper-focusing on cost and quality and uh, patient experience, where we are really going to be thinking about uh, serving um, all aspects of the the population equally and you know, uh, closing gaps in a lot of these inherent inequities. And it's great that there's been, um, I think, recognition of this uh, at a broader level to really galvanize uh, a movement within value itself to to make that happen. In your um, 
uh, discussion of health equity, you talked a lot about the different priorities. Um, I, I wanted to go a little bit deeper on that and just talk about maybe where some of the the most um, uh, prominent uh, priorities are in this current legislative um, uh, year that we're in. I mean, we've certainly seen a lot of bipartisan support uh, for value transformation um, on Capitol Hill, but there's obviously a lot of competing interests regarding legislative priorities in 2022. And the industry and like-minded organizations um, have advanced the the Value Act in the last few years, but we haven't really seen that enacted into law. And for our listeners out there, the Value and Healthcare Act of 2021 is bipartisan legislation that would incentivize ACO participation and create more equitable policies for existing ACOs. The bill increases Medicare shared savings rates, updates to risk adjustment rules, eliminates the artificial distinction between high and low revenue ACOs, addresses uh, the rural glitch um, that's currently um, in the benchmarking uh, model for ACOs, and it restarts the ACO investment model. And the bill also reinforces the shift to value-based care by extending the 5% advanced APM incentive payment for an additional six years and authorizes a study of the overlap of various Medicare alternative payment models. And this bill also uh, mandates a report by the Government Accountability Office on health outcomes and racial disparities in Medicare patients cared for by ACO participants compared to traditional Medicare and those not assigned by any other APM. So there's a lot there, Allison, in terms of you know, thinking about how to, how to create a, a policy lever to really um, optimize a lot of these payment models. And with all these different legislative objectives, can you provide perspective on which ones of, are of the highest priority for NACOS and its members? Um, I'd love to, to hear what your members are talking about and, and what you're advocating for there. And then also, can you discuss how your office works in collaboration with HHS, CMS, and CMMI to set these policy priorities, identify opportunities to advance a public policy agenda that furthers value transformation and ultimately engages policymakers and other external organizations in education and advocacy? Absolutely. So our, our highest priority is the entire Value Act and all of the things in it. Um, now of course, it's actually a lengthy bill. There are quite a number of provisions and um, I kind of look at them in two different buckets. The one bucket is improving the incentives for Medicare shared savings program participation. And we really need to go back and fix the incentives and support the program and providers who are in it in a more meaningful way. By doing that, we will be able to fix that slow MSSP growth that we've seen in recent years, which really has been disappointing, I think. Um, so that's one bucket is providing support to MSSP ACOs. The other bucket of things is related to the advanced APM component of the quality payment program. And you mentioned the 5% advanced APM bonus. That's probably our top priority this year in Congress is trying to extend that advanced APM bonus. 2022 is the last performance year that providers can qualify for that incentive payment, which will be paid in 2024. That's been a really meaningful driver 
for getting providers to participate in risk-based models. And ACOs have been a huge factor in that. You mentioned earlier that there are around 60% of MSSP ACOs in two-sided risk models. And I think that's really largely a result of, you know, both the requirements to move to risk, but also rather than dropping out, which is always an option, staying in and being able to commit to that value transition and having that 5% bonus has really helped providers have the resources that they need to invest in the infrastructure and the ongoing operational costs to run an ACO and to be successful. Um, so in terms of our congressional priorities this year, you know, really focusing on extending that 5% advanced APM bonus is very important for us. We really don't want to see that incentive payment go away. And if that is the case, I think we'll really see providers start to reevaluate their participation in some of these risk-based models. With the ACO program, as many providers have taken on more risk, at the same time, we've also seen additional administrative burdens required of them. And so as they look at that overall balance of the benefits that they get from participating in the program, the benefits to their providers and their patients, they also do have to factor in what those costs are. Um, so, you know, we don't want providers to get to the point where they make a decision that maybe they can't continue this really important work. And that's why we'd like to see that 5% incentive payment extended for a number of years. Also, I think that when Congress passed the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act in 2015, that 5% incentive payment was supposed to be temporary. So that was not going to be in perpetuity, but when we got to the end of that 5% incentive payment timeframe, the thinking was that more providers would be in advanced APNs. I don't think we're where Congress intended us to be at this stage. And so we've seen ACOs are working. We need more support for providers to be able to take on this really challenging and meaningful work. And that's why we wanna see that bonus extended. We've been working with our congressional champions on the Value in Healthcare Act. Um, so it's HR 4587, and uh, we really are trying to educate lawmakers and their staff on the value transition and on ACOs. It's really important that we continue to explain what ACOs are um, and the wonderful work that they're doing, especially for Hill staff or lawmakers who weren't in Congress when MACRA was passed. So that's a, a big part of what we do in terms of our work with Congress is education, of course, advocating for the Value in Healthcare Act is also really important. And we would be really happy to see some of the provisions of the Value in Healthcare Act or the Value Act, as we call it, move individually. You know, we, we don't think that the entire bill will necessarily kind of go through the legislative process that we, you know, all learned about in civics class. But if the advanced APM bonus 
provision was peeled off and put in something else, that would be absolutely terrific. At the same time, we need to fix thresholds that are necessary to meet in order to be eligible for the bonus. Those are called the qualifying APM participant thresholds. And so it's kind of two sides of the same coin. If we extend the bonus, but those thresholds rise to such unreasonable levels that providers can't qualify, but nobody will earn the bonus, which therefore undermines its effectiveness. And if we don't extend the bonus, then the QP thresholds um, are not as meaningful because they're related to a much smaller payment differential. In terms of our work with CMS and HHS, um, we work really closely with the administration and I've been really delighted with both the open door policy and collaborative nature from many CMS and HHS staff and leaders under this administration. I think that there is a real willingness to listen and to learn, which is so incredibly important. And we know that this administration highly values the value transition, but we do need to see, I think, some more swift action from the administration, kind of going from last year, which was kind of talk the talk, you know, they made it very clear that value was a high priority for them. But now we want them to, you know, walk the walk and uh, make some of these policy changes that we and others have been asking for to reinforce the value transition. Allison, I'd like to go a little bit deeper onto one of the comments that Eric mentioned at the start, and that's the ACL rural glitch issue. And it's currently being addressed in the Accountable Care in Rural America Act, or HR 3746. And the legislation proposed corrects an unintended flaw in the current benchmarking methodology for the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which places rural ACOs and ACOs that hold a large market share at a disadvantage. And that's because CMS includes an ACO's own beneficiaries in the regional adjustment which is meant to aid ACOs who often have lower historic spending than their regional competitors. When ACOs that cover a large portion of the region's fee-for-service beneficiaries lower spending, that regional adjustment is nullified and ACOs are placed at a disadvantage because of their geography. While it's had minimal impact for ACOs in urban areas with a lot of provider competition, the impact's been quite significant in rural areas where an ACO covers a large number of the region's fee-for-service beneficiaries, which essentially means that the ACO is being measured against its own performance. What legislative fixes do you think need to be done to MSSP, to MSSP benchmarking methodologies to make it more equitable and ensure that all ACOs have an equal opportunity to share in savings regardless of their geographic location? So first I do wanna mention that um, that is also a provision in the Value and Healthcare Act. Um, so that rural glitch is also addressed in separate legislation, but both things would, uh, both pieces of legislation would accomplish the same thing. This has been a really important issue for ACOs and for NACOs. Since CMS changed its current MSSP benchmarking methodology in 2016, 
And unfortunately, it gets very wonky very fast. And it's sometimes challenging to explain how this technicality can have such a major effect on ACOs. But as we look at an accountable care model, the target or the benchmark is just so critically important because if that's wrong, then you really aren't being fairly evaluated. And then you really don't have an adequate opportunity to earn shared savings, which is then what you use to reinvest in care coordination and all these services that benefit patients and benefit providers as well as our Medicare trust fund with shared savings payments. So as I like to say, in real estate, it's location, location, location. With ACOs, it's often benchmarks, benchmarks, benchmarks. So I just want to explain that because while it seems like a technicality, it's just such an important policy change that needs to happen to support ACOs. And our analysis shows that 90% of MSSP ACOs would benefit from correcting this benchmarking flaw known as the rural glitch. So it disproportionately harms rural ACOs, but as you mentioned, it affects any ACO that is in an area where the ACO has spending lower than their region. And what it, it really is doing is watering down the effect of comparing the ACO to other providers in their region because you're still comparing the ACO to itself. And the whole point of Medicare changing that benchmarking methodology in 2016 was to move away from ACOs continually being compared to themselves. The reason for that is that if an ACO is successful in lowering spending, then when its benchmark is reset, that benchmark goes down. So then they would have to lower spending even further. And eventually you just reach a point where you can't continue to lower spending. And therefore there wouldn't be shared savings and the ACO would eventually be paying Medicare back because it had saved money in the past. Um, and so that doesn't make sense. So we have seen acknowledgement of the need to fix ACO benchmarks. And there are some very viable alternatives out there. There are a number of different ideas on the table. Um, for example, recently MedPAC talked about moving away from the standard benchmarking methodology that we see today in MSSP and instead using a benchmark that is set largely outside of just looking at ACO historical spending. They refer to it as an administratively set benchmark. There are some positive aspects to that approach, but I think that rather than having a complete upheaval quickly to move to a brand new benchmarking methodology, as a short-term fix, we should address this rural glitch issue which has been out there and been a problem for now going on six years. So let's fix that and get that right. And we can also explore some of these other alternatives to benchmarking for future program refinements.
And one thing I'd mention about that rural glitch is that CMS has, has authority to make that change on their own. The reason that we see two bills in Congress that address the rural glitch is because the agency has not taken action to fix the rural glitch. Therefore, you know, we've kind of turned our attention to Congress asking them to weigh in and require that change to be made. Well, Allison, I, I, I really appreciate that thoughtful explanation and it's uh, certainly um, an important priority and uh, it definitely comes down to uh, benchmarking, I think, for uh, value-based care success and making sure that we have the right design uh, to get the results that we seek at a federal level. You know, um, we've talked about so many important issues, and I wanted to talk now about direct contracting. And, you know, this is a first for us, Allison, but we're, we're speaking right now on Wednesday, February 16th, and we're actually releasing this episode on the same day that we do the interview because there's so many um, individuals in the value community that are really up in arms right now about the rumored cancellation of direct contracting. And there's a lot of speculation that, you know, federal uh, regulators are considering the future of the, of this program with an announcement that may be coming out soon. And this is unnerving a lot of provider groups. And I, I definitely want to ask you about that particular issue, which is in the moment right now. But before I do that, I wanted to first discuss just the global and professional direct contracting model or GPDC in and of itself. I mean, this uh, model, direct contracting and CMMI's most progressive program for meeting the special healthcare needs of 38 million traditional Medicare beneficiaries. And it draws on the best elements of prior CMS and CMMI value-based care initiatives, such as MSSP, next-gen ACOs, and it offers enhanced benefits for no additional cost while improving access to accountable primary care for Medicare beneficiaries that have really been suffering from a, a fee-for-service payment system that provides little incentive for coordinated or preventative care. And GPDC uses many of the same operating levers as Medicare Advantage, uh, such as beneficiary engagement incentives, benefit enhancements, and pass-through of benefits to preferred providers. And with full capitation, as with MA, these DCEs would be responsible for most of the claims payments as well as medical management. So, I, you know, Allison, I just wanted to get your perspective on how the direct contracting model can be a vehicle to drive value transformation and why it's such an attractive payment model for next-gen ACOs and other ACOs that are advanced in their level of risk maturity and value-based readiness? Sure. Well, first, I want to just mention that NACOS has been a longtime supporter of the direct contracting model. And one of the things that's been challenging about the model is that it's not just one model. It's actually three models. Um, you touched on two of them, the professional direct contracting model, and then the global component of the direct contracting model. There was also an even more aggressive uh, model called the geographic option of the direct contracting model. And that's been tabled. Um, but I think that some of the recent criticisms of direct contracting have 
been confusing the various options within direct contracting, sometimes mixing up geographic direct contracting with the other two components. Um, so I just want to make clear that professional and global direct contracting are really building on high risk accountable care models. And it's a natural evolution that we see and very appropriate for the Innovation Center to test payment models such as professional and global direct contracting. Um, now everybody is referring to them sort of together as GPDC. Uh, people used to call it GlowPro. I think I liked GlowPro better, but I'll stick with the acronym that seems to be the most popular these days, which is GPDC. And any comments I make about direct contracting from here on out are about GPDC, the Global Professional Direct Contracting, and not on the geographic option, which has been suspended and had no participants in it. It hadn't gotten that far. Um, GPDC had its first performance period in 2021. We saw around 50 direct contracting entities or DCEs enter into the program. Some of them were historically successful ACOs that moved from MSSP or the next gen model, which came to its conclusion at the end of 2021, and they moved into direct contracting. We saw some new entrants and the model also does have a focus of attracting new players into the traditional Medicare space. And that's where some of the concerns have come in on direct contracting as certain critics have said that it's not appropriate to attract payer-led DCEs or investor-backed DCEs and that the model should remain provider focused. Um, but setting aside the criticism of from certain people about the model, there are a lot of supporters of the model, including NACOS and others. And I think that we see that support coming for a variety of reasons. Providers are, after a decade, really are embracing the shift to risk and under GPDC, you can have risk up to 100% of shared savings and losses. There also is more flexibility, as you mentioned, around various payment rule waivers and benefit enhancements. Additionally, the quality measurement requirements are less onerous than what we see under the Medicare Shared Savings Program. And also the ability to use capitation. And there is flexibility there. So DCEs can just focus on, you know, primary care capitation, or they can have total care capitation. So I think that as providers have evaluated this model, those are some of the main elements that have been attractive to them. Um, we also see some different approaches with benchmarking and risk adjustment, which are always such important considerations to whether 
an ACO or in this instance, a DCE can be successful. Um, there are some challenges though with the direct contracting model. So in order for Medicare to ensure that it generates savings from this model, it applies a discount to the benchmark. And that discount starts at 2%, but it grows over time. And in the later years of the program, it's up to 5%. And that's on top of additional challenges such as a retention withhold and a quality withhold. So I think for some providers looking at this, they you know maybe viewed the discounts as too high of a hurdle to overcome. But it's clear that evaluating the program in its entirety, a lot of people find this program very appealing and a great way to continue moving quickly and aggressively on the transition to value. Well, Allison, I think you're right about that, um, where, you know, everyone that I talk to, and certainly I'm of, of this um, uh, viewpoint as well, is that this really seems to, to have the potential to really have a catalyzing effect in the uh, value movement. I mean, with all the different levers and design characteristics that you described, I mean, the, the global and professional option, you know, really does open up a lot of opportunities to, to create value transformation in our country. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the controversy right now, and you certainly referenced uh, some of the, the critics uh, of the program. And yeah, I wanted to engage you a little bit more on that just because it seems like something happened over the weekend. I don't know what it was, but, you know, I came into the office on Monday and, you know, we had members of the ACLC just reaching out and, you know, they're really in a panicked state. Um, with um, some of the concerns about uh, looming uh, cancellation of the program with an announcement maybe um, forthcoming and happening as soon as um, we're, we're conducting this interview today. And uh, it's certainly not a, a good signal right now for those that are really trying to make those investments. And um, I know a leading voice in the argument against GPDC is the Physicians for a National Health Program, which is uh, an organization that's advocating for a universal single-payer single national health program. And earlier this month, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren also railed against direct contracting during a, a Senate Finance Committee subcommittee, you know, claiming that the program enriches private investors and organizations. And, you know, critics of Direct contracting suggests that DCEs will engage in aggressive diagnostic upcoding and miscategorize patients to qualify for higher risk-adjusted payments. And um, in all actuality, uh, from what I understand, DCEs are subject to multiple coding limitations, and direct contracting risk adjustment is not undermined by the complicated regulations and litigation that limit government action on miscoding and Medicare Advantage. So it's not exactly a apples to apples comparison there. And unfortunately, it, it seems that most of um, seems that CMMI's most promising value based programs are facing a coordinated attack from these uh, Medicare uh, for all advocates that want to end it before we really have concrete evidence that can prove that 
uh, direct contracting can benefit patients, providers, and the Medicare system. And, you know, the implications of canceling the GPDC model, I mean, it would send a shockwave to the uh, the value-based care uh, community and really have catastrophic consequences, you know, uh, I think for the value movement. So that's why we wanted to really engage you on this important topic, Allison. But, you know, um, I, I just can't help but think, you know, if we got rid of the model, you know, especially since it's like mid-performance period for those DCEs that are currently in a performance year. I mean, they're going to lose trust and future CMMI models and just for the broader, you know, value ecosystem, you know, it has, you know, canceling this program would shatter all confidence for provider organizations to trust the government and its commitment to value-based care. And, you know, many of the recent criticisms against the model appear to be just misleading and flat out false. And I'm grateful that you're here on this podcast at this moment to set the record straight. So I wanted to just see if you could respond a little bit more to the criticisms of the GPDC model and the work that NACOS is doing to save the program from cancellation. You know, I personally, on behalf of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, signed off on the recent uh, letters that uh, NACOS organized around the coalition to write to uh, Secretary Becerra and also reach out to policymakers and really appreciate the great work that your office is doing and would love for you to share some perspective for our many listeners out there that are really nervous right now about this program. Well, it has been a very eventful week, to say the least. Um, this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but my hair has turned white in the past week, so I might look different than the profile picture um, that I would have submitted in advance. It definitely has been challenging. Um, and let me just back up a little bit and explain about where some of this criticism has come from. This is something that we saw kind of percolating over the summer. Um, and a lot of the criticisms we felt were unfounded or misleading, such as claiming that direct contracting is a complete takeover of traditional Medicare and that patients had no choice of providers. So I think that there was some misinformation out there um, we at NACOS have really tried to correct some of this misinformation and explain that GPDC is not a takeover of traditional Medicare, but it really is a stepping stone on the path to value. And it's very in line with what the Innovation Center was established to do. Um, in terms of testing payment models for a finite period of time and then taking lessons learned from those and applying them elsewhere. Um, it's not meant to be something that is conducted in perpetuity. The program, like any other APM, would be evaluated over the course of the model and adjustments would be made to this model, just like we've seen in previous models, if the government feels that they are losing money on the model to such an extent that warrants program modifications, or if there are concerns around poor quality or access issues, those would be red flags for the Innovation Center and to CMS to step in and make program adjustments. I will say that 
as NACOS has evaluated GPDC, we have had some concerns that have been raised by certain critics. So we would like to see the model be more provider focused. One thing that I think is rather telling about the evolution of the direct contracting model is when it was initially discussed and rolled out, it was called direct provider contracting. And later they dropped the provider. And I thought that that was notable because it wasn't just a name change. I think that it did also reflect that they were trying to attract new players into traditional Medicare. And what concerned me about that was one of the ways that they were doing it was to make the model kind of balanced from a budgetary perspective is they were giving additional benefits and tr favorable treatment to those new entrants who be coming in. And that really seemed to be at the expense of historically successful ACOs. People had already been working on the transition to value for a decade and already seen savings. Um, so what we have been asking for prior to this kind of dust up was to rebalance the program to make it more provider led and provider centric. So we will continue to ask for those changes. And I think that CMS really is listening right now to all stakeholders about these concerns and about what program modifications should be put in place to address the critics of the program. Some of the other options that the agency has for adjusting the program would be to put limits on who can participate and also to, for example, require a certain percent of the governing body be providers, increase patient representation in the governance. Um, I think that they have a lot of different options and I think it's important to figure out the best way to modify the program, but to keep it on track. As you mentioned, canceling the program outright would really shatter the confidence of the provider community in the shift to value. And I really don't think that's what CMS wants at all. Um, I think that they realize that providers really would lose trust in them. And I think if we're going to be successful in the value transition, there has to be a high level of trust between payers and providers. There has to be good collaboration there and not an adversarial relationship. And so I think that canceling a program after DCEs have spent so much time and effort evaluating the model, applying, and preparing to and now participating would just really gut the innovation center's ability to roll out future models and have a positive, favorable response and high level of trust with those APM participants. So, you know, right now it's uh, 4.30 on February 16th, Eastern time. We are waiting for and hoping to get clarification from HHS and CMS about the future of the program. I really am hopeful that we will see 
something from the agency indicating that they will be continuing the program, perhaps with some guardrails or modifications to make sure that the program is on the right track and is just, I think, another important step for the Innovation Center as it tests some of these components for APMs. Allison, this is a great way to, uh, I think, to wrap up our conversation. I'd love to hear more about what your views as a health policy expert and an advocate for value-based care, your parting thoughts on the current state of the value of the value-based care movement in our country. When you think about health policy and the driving force that it is, despite value-based care generally being a bipartisan issue, the movement is encountering these speed bumps. Politically, you know, it seems like we're staying the course in the progression of downside risk payment models, but then we see these delays or pullbacks in certain new APMs. You know, we've been talking about the direct contracting mixed signals or challenges. There's also the seriously ill population component of the primary care first model that's under review and did not begin on its April 1st start date. We've got the new kidney care choices APM rollout that was set to start last year and was delayed until 2022. And the direct contracting, uh, the GEO model is being cr criticized as a, private, a Medicare privatization policy, since it would auto assign every traditional Medicare beneficiary living in a large geographic region into a Medicare Advantage like GEO-DCE without a, an option to opt out. These have been, and this has been under review for quite some time. And now following that postponement of the second application cycle for the GPDC model, there's talk about canceling the model as you've been discussing with Eric altogether. All of these signals are in juxtaposition to the results of the CMMI APM portfolio that shows despite serving over 26 million patients, they're not producing the necessary financial and quality impacts to justify expanding most of the pilots. Of the 54 total models, only five have produced statistically significant savings. And CMMI Director Liz Fowler spoke at NACOS recently and, and provided strong indication that the end of fee-for-service is coming to the healthcare industry. She said, quote, we can't have fee-for-service remain a comfortable place to stay. All parts of the system need to be brought into the value-based world, end quote. Allison, what does one make of all this? Uh, what is your perspective? Is health policy heading in the right direction and moving fast enough in this race to value? I don't think that it's ever going to be as fast as we would like it to be. And that's because it's incredibly challenging work. I'm optimistic about how much we've accomplished in less than a decade. And I think as we look back in another decade, we will see even more positive results I think as we look at the transition to value, my hope is that it's not viewed as this payment model or that payment model, especially when we're talking about ACOs, which is the largest Medicare APM by far um, with the MSSP, that it really is viewed as and starts to feel like it's sort of embedded in the fabric of Medicare, where it really is something that we wouldn't move away from. I think that the policy roadblocks or upheaval that we've had from COVID-19 have been incredibly challenging. And those are real frustrations. And I work on those things every day from a policy perspective. So I 
really understand why providers, you know, feel frustrated by the constant changing of regulations and rules and programs and requirements and things like that. But I think if we can kind of lift our perspective away from those kind of speed bumps, we really will see that this is the trajectory that we need to move. And that I think providers are increasingly embracing. And so I think that we'll see providers saying, I don't want to go back it, it, even more than we are seeing now. And as patients start to understand some of the benefits of what it means to be in an APM. What does it mean when you have that care coordinator call you or you have a smoother transition of care or somebody checking for your medication adherence? I think those patient stories will be really meaningful because I hear the work that our ECOs are doing and I'm just blown away. I feel so proud to be associated with such meaningful changes that are benefiting patients and providers and our healthcare system as a whole. So I definitely get frustrated with some of these challenges, but looking at the bigger picture, I think that it's positive and that we're headed in the right direction. We need a little more time to get there. And that's where certain things come into play, like extending that advanced APM bonus. Also, one thing that I think is really important as we talk about the shift from fee-for-service to value is it shouldn't be forced onto providers. And sometimes as we talk about tackling these important issues, I worry if the answer is, we'll just make them do it. They're not taking on risk fast enough, just force them to take on risk, or they're not you know, transitioning to electronic clinical quality measures, just force them, just mandate, mandate, mandate. Because all of these things at the end of the day really add up. And I think that sometimes from policymakers' perspective, they might not see the full picture of kind of those administrative burdens, but providers do. And I would like to see more favorable treatment of providers so that we're supporting them and incentivizing them in a positive way to move to value and to stay on the path to value. We see a fairly high dropout rate of ACOs over time. And that can be a little bit hard to unpack and really understand because some of that is a result of mergers or joining kind of a convener. So at the end of the day, that provider might still be in an ACO or in an APM. They just may be in a different one. And so as we look at that ACO list, it can be a little challenging because we don't have the TIN or NPI level information to really track that over time. But we do see turnover in the program. And I'd like to see Congress and or the administration step in and make some of these favorable changes so that the, that the road is smoother for ACOs so that they can kind of stay on this transition to value. And um, I'm just really proud to be a part of it. Well, and for due reason, Allison, you're doing such great work. And, you know, uh, I, I, I can confidently speak on behalf of 
the broader value community and just thanking you for your leadership and advocacy. I mean, this is such important work. And uh, we all, I always like to say this is uh, this transition to value-based payment. It's not just an economic imperative, it's a moral imperative as well. And, you know, I, I just, uh, again, wanted to thank you for being on our show this week for this uh, special episode. And I, 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 I think it's going to go a long way to assuage uh, some of the the panic and concerns that are out there on the GPDC model, but also um, bring about a broader understanding of the important work that NACOS is doing. And just so I just wanted to thank you again for uh, spending some time with us and um, and really representing the, the community and the industry in the way that you are. Well, thank you. And I really appreciated the discussion. And um, there's so much collaboration that's happening in the shift to value. And, um, you know, I think that you and your work are definitely part of that. And um, there's a nice camaraderie as everybody is kind of learning about this together. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Allison. 